0: It's May 29, 2007, and you're listening to the NACOcast, coming to you, as always, from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. My name is Christopher Millard. On this edition of the NACOcast, we have the second of two interviews with the distinguished Canadian composer Gary Kulesha, who's sitting with me today in the lobby of the National Arts Center, immediately following the second performance of his new Third Symphony. And we have a small and dedicated group of music lovers here listening to Gary, and we're going to talk. On this episode, following up a little bit on our last episode with Gary, in which we talked about composition itself, tonight we're going to talk a little bit about educating composers and how composers manage to make a living. And what I want to start with, Gary, is a little quote from your distinguished colleague, R. Mary Schaefer, who has apparently a bunch of aphorisms up on the wall of his studio. And one of them is... Teach on the verge of peril. Hmm. Now you are a composition teacher. What the heck does he mean by
1: well, that? Well, he could mean a lot of things about, uh, about by that. A teaching is a is a you know it's a two way street. And I think what he's probably talking about is that when one teaches, especially when one is teaching something as complicated as composition, there is as much self discovery involved as there is teaching. You know. Um, on a, you know, a simple example, when I first started teaching beginning composition at the University of Toronto 15, 20 years ago, um, I had to go back and try to figure out what exactly it was about composition that could be taught in the first place. Because I was, you know like many young composers, I, I kind of learned to compose by composing. I listened to music and I wrote what I thought I heard. But then at the university level, you have to approach it as an academic study. And so I had to go back and actually analyze what I had done intuitively when I was young. And it was a complicated process. It was definitely, you know, it was, it was eye-opening. And it was a little bit, there was just a touch of unpleasantness to it. Because suddenly I was looking at these things that I had always done intuitively and that I had always been, that had been very natural for me. And I recognized that, boy, you, you kind of could put, a formula down here you know there were certain ways in which music could proceed that was very sort of regimented and i didn't really like that realization i mean it's not to say that that's what composers do but you could see it that way
0: do you mean uh, the whole idea of studying form in music well
1: form at this uh, form is is a generalized term which usually refers to for example a sonata allegro but form functions at a very small level too and One of the things that Schenberg did as a teacher was uh, he created a book called Models in Composition, and in that book, he actually goes back and codifies every possible way in which a phrase can be constructed. And he literally makes models. He makes abstract models. He says, look how Beethoven does this, look how Mozart does this, look how Bach does this. And he codifies. He says, in Bach, bar one, you do this, in bar two, you do this, in bar three, you do this. So it's form, but at the very smallest level.
0: He's looking for some commonality in
1: expression. And what he discovers is symmetry. He discovers that that there's an underlying symmetry that drives all of this music. And of course at first glance, it seems to be formulaic. And then you realize that, of course, the great challenge is to do this underlying symmetry, but disguise it, and that's what the great composers do. They very rarely proceed in a way that follows these abstract models. Beethoven once in a while kind of gets into four bars plus four bars, you know, he, he sometimes does that. But Mozart and Bach would never do that, and Beethoven at his best doesn't do that. So I think that's one perilous thing that you have to uh, that you deal with as a as a composition teacher, just seeing in the abstract the process that you have done most of your life intuitively. Uh, the other is, of course, that no two composers are alike. And when you teach composition, if you teach an instrument, I used to teach a little bit of piano, and I know that when you teach an instrument, there's a kind of objective mark that you can aim for. You can say. You know, you can either play the scales at the metronome marking or you can't. So even if you cannot teach artisan, you know, somebody to be an artist, at least you can teach a kind of objective level of technical expertise, which doesn't make anybody an artist, but it's something that can be taught. In composition, it's there is a bit of that. There's actually a fair bit of that. But there's this added dimension of simply trying to get inside the head of the composition student because no two people think alike. If you're studying piano, there's a canon of repertoire that you have to learn. That's how pianists are formed. As a composer, anything can be going on in the student's head. And you almost become like a psychiatrist because you have, to, you have to kind of divine. You have to get there first. You have to second guess. You have to say, okay, this, what is this guy trying to accomplish with this music? What? I don't, you know, and, and, and I've had situations where I've had students who were completely alien to me because I really could not get my head around at all what was going on inside their head.
0: In the academic environment, uh, students, of course, need to be uh, somewhat submerged in the tradition of what's come before them in the last three or four hundred years. So do you start with a student at, at, at some level saying, I want you to write a piece in classical style using... Um, classical harmonies and do I want you to write something in a in a romantic style. Do, do you say I want you to, this week to to write something short in the style of Prokofiev. What, how specific are you in your direction with students when you're trying to make sure that they understand the traditions from which they're coming?
1: Well that's a that's a multi-level question. It's a very complex question. There are many people who would take you to task for the very premise of your question. There are many people who believe that creativity and being a composer have nothing to do with tradition and have nothing to do with le- learning the music of the past. There are many people who believe that the computer, because it provides... The computer has become a musical instrument. Many people believe that. And that it's possible to be a composer without reading music, and it's possible to completely be, be completely ignorant of tradition and still be creative and, and write music. Um, I personally don't feel that way, but a, a lot of my colleagues do, and a lot of people teach that way. The way I was taught composition was through what you're referring to. You're, what, what you're talking about and what you just referred to is what we call style studies. In other words, it's important, it was important for me to learn to write a fugue. It was important for me to to learn to write a simple dance movement in Baroque style much the way that Bach might have done it. Um, I, I studied with Dr. Samuel Dolan at the Royal Conservatory of Music, and he put me through a very specific regimen, very difficult regimen. Uh, you know, one of the exams that I had to write was a three-hour examination in which you walk into the room and with your pencil, and there's a theme, and you write a set of variations in the style of Beethoven for string quartet in three hours. And so I, I very much come from that background of, of style studies, and of learning your way through these various styles and various techniques. Um, when I teach, I teach in a similar way. And I try to adjust my teaching style to the level at which I find the, the student. So some students really need very basic work. And you begin, I mean, I, I love going back to the Bach 2 part inventions because they are the most fundamental compendium of compositional technique that you can find. In, in two pages, you can learn a wealth of material from Bach. But I have set very special tasks for, for students as well, if they're somewhat more advanced. Uh, I will, uh, For example, I had a student recently that I asked, to, I asked her to do a, a Bach two-part invention, and then I said, okay, now what if you had no pitch? What if you had to write a two-part invention but you didn't have any pitch. What if you had to write it for a snare drum and a bass drum? What would it be like? And she came up with an incredibly creative solution. So style studies are important at some level, and some understanding of that underlying technique, I think, is very important. But you do have to kind of be aware of the fact, as I said earlier, that everybody's in a different place, and you have to try to judge a student according to that.
0: It's so interesting for me as a a performing musician, having come through a standard conservatory tradition, we were expected to to assimilate what you call style studies and what we would call just learning how to play Mozart, learning how to play Bach, learning how to play everything in order to become an accomplished artist. We also those of us who went through certain kinds of uh, conservatory training, also had to study fugue. I had to take an entire year of species counterpoint, which is a, a very uh, academic uh, compositional uh, knowledge. I had to study figured bass, and all of these uh, all of these were became building blocks for my ability and, and people like me who had that kind of training. Building blocks that allow us to enter into a performing working environment where we have the versatility and the command of a broad range of of uh, of styles and I could,
1: yeah i couldn't agree with you
0: more so it's as, uh, as performing musicians, we are uh, i think probably as a group somewhat skeptical of that group of composers that you have alluded to who are are not interested in in the history you you say that you're very much interested in in learning all that, and certainly what we heard in your your symphony shows a, a great depth of knowledge of of the late classical period. I had this very similar conversation with the composer Oliver Newsom several months ago in which he gave a very very cogent argument about the necessity of really understanding where everything has come from so I guess um, I, I, I guess the the, the next question that I want to put to you also comes from one of uh, Murray Schaefer's aphorisms on the wall, and perhaps it leads us to the downside of the kind of education that I've just talked to. He says, the old approach is, teacher has information, student has empty head. Teacher's objective is push information into student's empty head. Observation at outset, teacher is a fathead. At conclusion, student is a fathead. Hmm. Um, you understand what I'm saying? I, I, have yeah. a, I have a picture of knowledge and I'm going to pour into this empty vessel, and then you're going to regurgitate it.
1: With, with all due respect to Murray, he's leaving out one very important part of that equation, which is that I have never known a student who didn't want to know what I know. I don't find them to be empty vessels. I find them to be... Vacuum sponges, they don't come in passively sitting there saying, Okay, fill me up.
0: And they're all opinionated, Uh,
1: absolutely. They come in with powerful egos and clear points of view, and they want to know what I know.
0: And when are those powerful egos an obstacle to really uh, evolving?
1: Um, Often, (laughs) often, Uh, you know. But again, a good teacher learns to deal with even the most complex of egos and even the most, the people who are the most full of themselves. There's always a way to kind of deal with them. If you can talk to them as musicians, you can always deal with them, if you're at least vaguely in tune with them. But, I mean, this whole whole concept of, we call that passive learning, you know, you sit there and somebody fills your head with stuff. Good composers don't do that. Good musicians don't do that. Good musicians are curious. They want to know. We've had, you know, over the last several years in, in the various universities, we've seen, you know, to my mind, a kind of dumbing down of some of what goes on there. And it's always interesting to me to see when something really substantial is offered, absolutely everybody wants it. And there's this kind of assumption on the part of the teachers sometimes that, oh, you know, they don't really, they're not interested in that. But the moment you offer a really tough, structured, you know, highly informative course, all the best students want that. And I have never known a situation where a student composer didn't want to know everything that I know.
0: Do you think that some of your best teaching happens when all you do is ask questions?
1: Oh, I think that's absolutely the best way to teach. It may be the only way, to, uh, only way to teach composition. Because, you know, I can't tell a student how to put one note after another. Nobody can do that. I can't tell a student how to conceive of a piece of music. I can't tell a student how to be inspired. I can't tell a student where inspiration comes from. All I can do is provoke and the best way to provoke is to ask questions and say, you know, well, what about this? What about that? Why are you doing that? Why do you think that? Where does that opinion come from? Does that have any basis in history? You know, uh, it's, a, it, it's a tricky process, like I say,
0: you know, it's like being a psychiatrist. Murray Schaefer also has on his wall, I'm going to give you my third and final quote. He says, for the five-year-old, art is life and life is art. For the six-year-old, life is life and art is art. So the first year in school is a watershed in the child's history. It's a trauma.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: All right, so most composition students are not five and six, but can you see a corollary there between a 17-year-old and an 18-year-old composition student?
1: Between 17 and 18, no, but I do think that there is a kind of... Um, when we become artists, we, we have to fight to win back that innocence. You know, I I know that there are three stages of training. The first stage is, as Murray says, is just life is art. You, there is no separation when you're young. You can't even imagine that there is. Then the moment you begin to get into a training process, they separate. The moment that you have to actually go out and practice your scales, you can sometimes lose sight of the fact that you're practicing your scales so you can play the music better, so that you can go back to the communicative quality in the first place. And then there's the very hard one stage that that separates a professional artist from a student. And that's the ability to fly, the ability to pick up all of that hard work and all of that, sub- that objective knowledge and all of that practicing and to be free again and to go back and find that creative life that the five-year-old has. That's a very, very difficult thing to achieve.
0: Yeah, indeed. Gary, let's move on to a different subject. Having uh, gone through all the training that a young composer does, what is he or she facing in terms of professional possibilities? In other words, what the heck is a young composer going to do to make a living?
1: Uh, probably not compose. <laughs> um, th- this is, of course, a phenomenon that is is beginning to happen all over the world as corporations begin to win and we begin to lose. Um, the the possibility first of all, nobody really makes a living as a composer in Canada. Murray does a great deal of educational work and I teach and you know people have had all, all kinds of other interests. There are some people who do make a living, um kind of a modest living.
0: Well let's flush this out now. The Canadian Music Center has how many members? I think six hundred. So there are six hundred self-declared composers. Right. Okay. Now how many of those are uh, actively composing music and receiving some remuneration for same,
1: Probably 50 to 60.
0: And how many of those would be able to afford put, to put bread and milk on the table? Perhaps
1: 10, 5 to 10. Okay. And again, it's a, a lot of it has to do with the question of what your expectation of a lifestyle is, which is a very complicated question. And one of the things which I tell all of my students is that, that you know, if you're prepared to live above a bowling alley in Belleville, you can probably make a living as a composer. But if you intend to get married, have children, and, you know, live in the suburbs, you, you're going to have a problem. And it's very important for them to grasp that. And, and of course, at the university level, we're, we have to be very careful because you, it's not a trade school. And so we really want to encourage them and say, yes, you should go out because you're passionate about it. But, of course, then we inevitably face that moment. I always get calls from my students once they've left school saying, well, what am I supposed to do now? And one of the worst things about teaching composition. I mean, even if even if you're playing bassoon and there's a limited, you know, need for bassoonists in Canada, at least you come out the other end with a demonstrable objective skill. You know, you can play the instrument. As a composer, absolutely nobody needs you. Nobody needs that next piece. There's no expectation that anybody will call you and say come and write us a piece or there's no there's no profession evident. You know, I mean, you still really haven't probably proven your credentials. You can't even go do an audition. So for a composition student who's leaving school, it's pretty traumatic. Um, what we've seen, what I've seen across, I'm 52 years old, and what I've watched is a number of people that I went to school with fall by the way. And if you begin to look at the people who were my colleagues when I was 20, There would be less of those people when I was 30, less of those people when I was 40, and now that I'm in my 50s, there's a handful of people who were with me back then who have actually stayed the course. I've often said that, you know, and I tell my students this as well, prize winning when you're young and getting those first few commissions, that's all very exciting. But the big question for a composer is sustainability. Whether or not you can sustain a career is the real question. Whether or not you want to sustain a career, because it's a struggle.
0: It involves knocking on doors, picking up the phone.
1: Well, it involves, Or does it
0: involve having other people be advocates for you?
1: It involves advocacy more than that. Because you can't talk somebody into get, taking a piece from you if they don't want it. Um, one of the things which I take very seriously in my role as, as a teacher and as a senior composer is mentorship. Because it's very important. I had doors opened for me by people. And it's very important for me in turn to open doors for the people that I believe in. And I think that, that you know, being part of the community and, and having a mentor are far more important than the ability to promote yourself or having a manager or you know, any of those other things that we're often told is what we should be doing. I've never found any of those things to be effective. In fact, in my work with the orchestras that, that I have worked with, for, in particular the Toronto Symphony, a composer with a manager is sort of peculiar. You know, it's sort of a peculiar thing to hear. A hopeless optimist. Yeah, exactly, and, and we're not, we don't really care what the manager says. We just want to hear the music. Why are you wasting your money on the manager, you know? Um, so I think it's very much about, about being part of a community and being connected within that community, and about, um, you know, the big thing for a young composer is being in the right place at the right time. Dumb luck has a lot to do with it, and being able to deliver when you're asked to. You well,
0: know, what was your dumb luck moment?
1: Uh, I've had a couple. Um, Probably the most important thing that happened to me was the mentorship of a handful of people. Uh, When I was very young, I had a couple of close friends who went on to become professionals and kind of took me along part of the way for the ride. They, in turn, introduced me to other people. When I was 17 or 18, my very close friend, Scott Irvin, who's a professional tuba player in Toronto, was studying with Chuck Dallendock of the Canadian Brass. And the Canadian Brass needed somebody to do some arranging for them. And so he introduced me and off I went. And I've had a long-standing relationship with the Canadian brass that lasts even to this day. Uh, then there was a teacher at the University of Toronto that I met who took an interest in my work, Stephen Chinette. And um, probably the single most important figure for me was Rafi Armenian, who when he was the conductor of the Kitchener-Waterloo Orchestra, saw a score of mine. I didn't know him at all, but he saw a score of mine and I got a call saying, a uh, piece has been canceled, and Rafi's putting your piece into that program. And from there, I went on to have a relationship with that orchestra. I was very young. I was in my 20s. I became not only the first composer-in-residence with that orchestra, but the first composer-in-residence in Canada through the composer through the Canada Council's
0: program. Is, is becoming a composer-in-residence for an orchestra the plum job for a Canadian composer?
1: Well, it depends upon what kind of music you write. Um, it, it would be... It is for me, in a sense... Because I write orchestral music and it's a natural instrument for me, I often point out to people that, well, it's a again, it's a complicated balance between art and career. Because let's face it, careers are made on the basis of orchestral music. You know, one of the one of the most striking stories is John Tavener, who is a fine choral, English choral, choral composer. To my knowledge, he's written one and only one non choral piece, and that's the the. Uh, the Veil, I can't remember the exact name of it, but it was played by Stephen Isserlis. And that's the piece that made him famous because it was an orchestra piece, not a choir piece. Ironica, And so, you know, composers recognize that and want this exposure. But is it really the natural mode of expression for you? I point to Georgi Ligeti, who wrote some major orchestra pieces when he was young, some masterpieces, and then stopped writing for orchestra. And this was a composer who could pick up the phone to any orchestra anywhere in the world and say, listen, here's how much money I want. I'm going to write you a piece. And every orchestra in the world would have fallen over itself to get that. He had no interest in writing for the orchestra whatsoever. It was not his medium. It was not an appropriate vehicle for what he wanted to express. And so he walked away. So is it a plum job? If, if you're naturally predisposed towards orchestral repertoire, it's a great job. If you're kind of forcing a square peg into a round hole, it'll be nothing but suffering.
0: <laughs> Do we have any questions from the audience here? If so, could I ask you to go to the microphone so we'll record your question?
1: I was intrigued by the, uh, the earlier part of the interview where you mentioned that you have to, have to be a kind of psychiatrist, Um, Do you find that uh, the the ego of a person uh, sort of holds them back? And do you see a point where the person is going to become a good uh, musician, where the ego seems to disappear? I imagine this is what holds them back a bit in the first place. Well, you know, um, the interesting thing about music, uh, about all musicians, is that Music, art in general, all, all of the arts, Music in music not only do we allow you to be an egomaniac, we encourage you to be an egomaniac. And the reason for that is because if you don't have a strong enough vision and sense of who you are to go out and fight for it and to make it happen, what kind of artist are you? Every artist that I know, every great artist that I know, every good artist that I know has a powerfully defined ego and has the will to go and fight for their vision and to to pursue that vision at all costs. So I don't think ego is a stumbling block. Um, ego becomes a stumbling block when it is I- in the absence of people skills. I am a crazed egomaniac. Take it from me but I have people skills. And so I know that I'm, I can't bludgeon people to death with my opinions, and you know, I can't do that. That doesn't work that way. But believe me, I have the opinions. So when you're dealing with a young artist, it's a question of judging how, how far that young artist can go towards the kind of Zen process of letting go of their ego for a while. So that they can actually integrate into the community and become part of that community and be recognized as an artist. But you never want them to give it up. Because the moment they give it up, I mean, uh, that, that's all about their personal vision and it's all about what, what they do. You have to believe in what you're doing, absolutely. I mean, I know c- young composers who are incredibly talented. Who I, I personally don't get, even get along with. But for whom I fight. Because they are very talented, and I, and I know that they simply don't have the people skills to do for themselves what I can do for them. Um, and sometimes, you know, they never appreciate it. And it, it's it's one of those selfless things that you have to learn to do as a senior composer, if you have if you find yourself in that kind of situation of responsibility. But I I fully expect any any good artist to have a really powerfully developed ego. Someone else. Hi, Gary. I was uh, listening to your um, Third Symphony um, this evening. It's very, very good. Thank you. And during the um, performance, I was remembering something that someone said, that when you have an idea and you put it on paper, it changes. Mm-hmm. You can't re really put it on the same way. And I was wondering during the performance, when you were listening to that, whether, in fact, when the
0: orchestra interprets what's on the paper, whether what happened this evening was different from your original ideas. And if it is, I was wondering if you could tell us in words what you found was different?
1: Well, uh, no, it wasn't different. Um, that's kind of a disappointing answer, no. You know. But um, it, it, there is a kind of story that goes with it. Um, when My wife is also a composer, and she's roughly my age, and she was kind of, we were sort of think, talking this over a couple about a year ago, and she said, boy, wouldn't it be great to be 22 instead of 52, to go back and remember how exciting it was when you wrote that orchestra piece and you heard it for the first time, you went, wow, that's, I wrote that. Listen to that. That's, isn't that great? Now, f- at the age of 52, having done that for 30 years, I just go, yeah, that's, a, that's what I wrote. Yeah, right. that's. And, uh, you know, because I know what it's going to sound like. It doesn't surprise me. The only thing that surprises me is the acoustic quality of the orchestra itself. Because in my head, of course, the music is two-dimensional. And an orchestra, and one of the things which I try to put across in teaching orchestration is that an orchestra is a three-dimensional acoustical phenomenon. The violins are here, the timpani is there, the trombones are there, and that's something which always takes me a little bit by surprise, that there's this dimension to it that is, that's not in my head. But otherwise, I, I have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen when I write the piece. Uh, I, too, was intrigued. Uh, I, I enjoyed your piece very much. Thank uh, you. Uh, but I was
0: intrigued that you said that composers, uh, you know, there were so few that were making a living. Uh, I just wonder if there's a, a... You experience people who move to the pop uh, side and the classical side, and and does your uh, teachings uh, allow for that, and, and is it helpful?
1: Well, we have... Um, we don't teach pop music for the simple reason that, you know... I mean, I played in a lot of rock bands when I was young, and I, I wrote pop tunes. And there's nothing to learn. No disrespect intended to the great pop songwriters, but that's done by ear. What you do is you listen to tunes, you copy them with your ear, and you learn to do it by rote. You learn to do it with your ear. There's you don't. There's no textbook that says how to write a hit tune. You know, it's just a. It's a quest. It's a very intuitive process. Um, we have a lot of composers who cross over between the two. I began as totally as a classical composer, but I spent years in rock bands. And I still, in the car, listen to... I'm, I'm a big fan of Nickelback. You guys are probably too old to know who they are, but I'm a big fan of, of a lot of contemporary bands. I think Led Zeppelin is the greatest rock band ever. And, you know, I, I have a great passion for pop music. So there are a lot of composers who cross over. But what we oddly enough, what we see far more often than a guy like me writing pop tunes is a pop composer who wants to learn to write classical music. That's far more common. If you're Paul McCartney, you can hire Carl Davis to write it all out for you. But most people aren't Paul McCartney. They need to learn the skills themselves. But having said that, um, I think it's, you know, we need to dispel one myth right away. And that's that pop composers are rich. A handful of pop composers are rich. The rest struggle. The pop world, I've spent some time in the pop world. I've I've recorded with a few people. I recorded with James Taylor many, many years ago. I've worked with Alex Lifeson of Rush. The pop world is a tough, tough place to be. You know, and unlike the classical world where you've got guys like me and my colleagues mentoring for young guys, that's a cutthroat business. That's just, they grab what they can for themselves. So imagining that somehow you're gonna cross over into the pop world and make a living, that's a fantasy. I know people who are. I was a very good friend of uh, Lawrence Gallen, who was for a while was, had a very successful solo career in Canada and released some excellent albums and coverage. Uh, and uh, you know, Larry lives in a in a very nice house in Scarborough, in the suburb of Scarborough. He doesn't live in a penthouse in New York. He he makes a good middle class living. He's now the keyboard player for Sticks, you know, and he's he's a good middle class guy. You don't get rich in the pop world. Very few people get rich in the pop world.
0: Well, Gary, I think the enrichment for us has been experiencing this wonderful symphony that you've brought to us, which has been a great gift. The orchestra enjoyed it immensely, I can tell you. Thank you. Although the first horn said, I'll learn to love it when I I finish forgiving him for writing such a difficult uh, part for me. But it's really extraordinarily beautiful and great fun to play. So I'm sure on behalf of all of us here, I thank you for that wonderful music. Thank you very much. And that's all for this edition of the NACOcast, which has been coming to you tonight live from the lobby of the National Arts Centre. Send us your comments and questions. You can reach us by sending an email to nacocast at gmail.com. We always look forward to hearing from you. And don't forget, you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nacpodcasts.ca and there you'll find our past episodes, our subscription links and instructions on how to subscribe. You can also easily find us as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. So until next time, this is Christopher Millard saying goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre.